listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. Thanks for joining with us today. This year, we have begun a new series titled, Your Kingdom Come, based on the Old Testament book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is a book that calls us to action. The text prods and pokes us with this great question, will you submit your life to the Son of God? It's a call to humble ourselves before this King and trust in Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thanks for joining with us today. Brothers and sisters, would you grab your Bibles and would you open them up to the book of 1 Samuel? The sermon text for this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 10. 1 Samuel 2, verse 1 through verse 10. Hear God's word. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray this morning, saying, my soul clings to the dust. Give me Life according to your words. We pray, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. We pray, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. We pray, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise, because then I will have an answer for him who taunts me. For I trust in your words. We pray, take not your word of truth out of our mouths. For my hope is in your rules. Oh, Father, we need your good word this morning. And so we pray, would you be pleased to press it upon us, to encourage us, to lift us up? Would you be pleased to reveal yourself to us? We need to see you. And in seeing you, there is life. And so give us life this morning, we pray. We pray this in your son's good name. Amen. 
So we began last week in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and 1 Samuel chapter 1 was a chapter of activity. There's all sorts of action going on. There was a journey. Actually, there's, there's two journeys in chapter 1. There were feasts, there were tears, there was weeping, there was prayers, and ultimately there was a baby. And so in the midst of this busy chapter of chapter 1, in the midst of the traveling and the feasts and the prayers and the salvation, we met the most important character in the book of First and Second Samuel. We met the God of Israel. And though most of the words in chapter 1 were devoted to Hannah, we learned about her plight and her, her prayer and the provision that she received. We cannot get confused about this book. Hannah doesn't control the story. What Hannah did or didn't do didn't ultimately shape the story. And though the Lord only gets a few lines, just a few words in chapter 1, the Lord shapes and controls everything that happens in this story. We learned in chapter 1 that Hannah was barren, and we asked, well, why was Hannah barren? Was it bad luck that she was barren? Was it just the, the fickle nature of her body? Well, when we read the text of Scripture, we have to say, no, there's a deeper reason to her barrenness. She was barren because of the, the Lord. And so we read the truth in verse 5, and then it was repeated to us in verse 6. The text says, the Lord had closed her womb. Then Hannah conceived and she bore a son. And we asked, well, why? Was it the result of reproductive technology? Was it just about time that this happened to her? Well, again, none of these answers gets to the heart of the matter. Why did Hannah conceive and bear a son? Well, it's right there in the text. Verse 19, the Lord remembered her. And because the Lord remembered her, she had a child. And so we see that 1 Samuel chapter 1 is ultimately a lesson about the God of Israel. When we start to learn a few things from chapter 1. We learn that this God of Israel is an intrusive God. His presence invades all of reality. No man, no woman, no child, even the depths of a woman's womb is not out of his grasp. We see that Hannah's life is wrapped up in this God and we start to think, oh, our lives, too, are wrapped up in this God. And we learn that this God of Israel is not only a God who invades all of reality, but this God is a powerful God. In his hands, he holds life and death. And that's dramatically illustrated in Hannah's life. Her womb was dead until the Lord decided otherwise. And this starts to get us thinking, doesn't it? The Lord holds our lives in his hands. We live as long as the Lord desires us to, and then we die when he says so. Not a moment before, not a moment later. And we learn that this God is the king. This God is the king. No one can constrain him. No one can control him. He does all that he wills, and all that he wills is done. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we learn all of this just from a few short lines. The Lord closed her womb. The Lord remembered her. But something interesting happens when we move from chapter 1 into chapter 2. Because chapter 2 is different than, than chapter 1. What we find in chapter 2 is revealing. 
Every human character fades into the background, even Hannah, and the God of Israel takes center stage in chapter 2. In chapter 2, the minimalistic language is cast aside. This this terse vocabulary is eclipsed. These, These brief descriptions of God and his ways are put away, and Hannah begins to sing. And as she sings, and as we patiently listen to her, we come to know who this God is who closed her womb and then remembered her. And so this morning, we're going to deal with Hannah's song. We're going to deal with a piece of poetry. Now, if we're brutally honest with ourselves, the prospect of studying some poetry, studying a song this morning might seem like an interruption to you. In fact, you might even say, this, this sounds like a distraction. And it sounds like a distraction. Why? Because we're caught up in Israel's crisis. Remember the situation that we're stepping into in the book of 1 Samuel. Israel is outmatched and outgunned by her opponents. Israel's dealing with the Philistines. And not only is Israel dealing with this foreign threat invading their land, but the worship of God has become corrupt. The priests are agents of of evil. And then there's the home to think about. The home is the cesspool of sin and trouble. And so we can just step into the shoes of Israel for a moment and we When we do that, we ask, well, what do we need? Well, if we step into the shoes of Israel this morning, we say this, we need action and we need lots of action. We say, we need a battle with the Philistines. We say, Lord, would you give us some some proper weapons so we can go out on the field and spill some Philistine blood? We want to take care of these invaders. We need swords, Lord. We keep thinking. We put ourselves in the, the shoes of Israel We say to ourselves, what we ultimately need is we need a reformation in the tabernacle. We need to figure out a way to get rid of Hophni and Phinehas. We need to get rid of these corrupt sons and we need to figure out a way. We need to get some sort of mechanism in place so we can have holy men serving the Lord. And when they no longer are holy, we can get rid of them. We keep thinking this through and then we say to ourselves, well, we also need a revival in the home. We need some dads who are going to step up and, and take responsibility for their families, for their wives, for their, for their children. We need to figure out some way to get some kind of discipleship process to, to reach these men, to empower them, to, to reach their families and govern their families in a way that pleases God. And so we say to ourselves, we don't have time for a song. I don't have the bandwidth, I don't have the patience for some poetry. I need action, and I need some action right now. I want a sword. I want reformation. I want to deal with these families. But here's the thing. God doesn't think so. think so. And yes, it's true. Israel has some practical needs that need to be taken care of. There's the Philistines, and they need to be dealt with. They need to be removed from the land. There's this leadership issue in in the land of Israel. Hophni and Phinehas need to be removed. There's the family issue. Dads need to show up and, and start parenting their families. But here's the thing. Before God does any of those practical things, he does what? He makes us work through these 10 verses. He makes us work through this poetry, this this song. And we have to understand that the text of Scripture and the very way it's structured in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel teaches us something. 
We, we learn about God as he structures his word and as he gives his word to us. The placement of this song right at the beginning of the story teaches us about Israel's greatest and most fundamental need. And we can take this. Israel needs something more than freedom from the Philistines. Israel needs something more than a reformation in the tabernacle, a new line of priests. Israel needs something more than a bunch of dads and family renewal. They need to know their God, who he is, and ultimately what he is like. And this is true for us as well. Just think about our lives. We're all embedded in different crises. Some of them of our own making. Some of them have been thrust upon us. And what 1 Samuel chapter 2, what what Hannah's song does is this. It begins to drive our minds and drive our hearts toward God. And that's what we need in the middle of our crises. We need to be driven towards the Lord. And what we're going to find if we have eyes to see and ears to hear is this. The text of Scripture is going to be calling out to us this morning again and again and again. It's going to be crying out, will you not just cast your vision upon God? Will you not just stop and look upon his infinite majesty? Won't you just stop and meditate upon his glory and his total sovereignty over all things? Will you not just stop and think and carefully consider and worship this great God who exists and who rules over you? And we have to see that this song sets the agenda for the people of God. The placement of the song is teaching us something about the Christian life. All revival, all reformation, all missionary movement and expansion begins not with our plans or our desires or our activity. No, it all begins with a vision of God, who he is and what he is like. Reflection upon God and his majesty is not garnish on the Christian's plate. It's just not an extra that we, we deal with when we have time. No, we see in this text that it's the very meat and the potatoes of our lives. And so we need to think about this, don't we? Well, what does this mean for us? So I want to front load this sermon with application. Because this is where the text of Scripture begins to push on us and prod us and investigate our hearts. So think about this personally. How much time each week do you spend just thinking about God and what he is like? Or to narrow that down, just every day, Yesterday, how much time did you think about God in in his ways? Or to put you on the spot, and this might be a more helpful way, perhaps you you come home and, and you meet a friend and your friend knows that you went to church today and he knows a little bit about what you do at church. You, you go to sit in the presence of the Lord and, and worship him and receive gifts from the Lord. And so your friend asks you after church, well, what is your God actually like? You went to sit in his presence. You went to receive his gifts. But what is this God actually like? And here comes the, the point. Well, what would you say? Could you say anything? Could you talk for five minutes about your God? Could you talk for ten minutes about your God? Could you talk for two hours about your God? Could you have anything to say about him? One of the most challenging quotes I've ever heard comes from A.W. Tozer. He wrote this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And this text is asking us, well, what is in your mind about this God? Because that's the most important thing about you. Do you know him? Do you know what he is like? And so there's application for us personally, but there's not only application for us personally, there's application for us corporately as a people. So just think about the life of the church. In, a life, in the life of the church, we meet all sorts of, of problems. Over the course of years, a church is going to meet financial stress. There's going to be other stressors as well. There's going to be times when attendance goes up and attendance goes down. There's going to be times when there's relational stress, even acute relational stress in the midst of a church. And we have to ask, well, what do we do when all of these things happen? Maybe one thing happens, or maybe five things happen, or maybe ten things happen all at once. What's our corporate instinct? How do we deal with these situations? Are we quick to make plans? Are we quick to complain and grow bitter and withdraw? Are we quick to fight? Or is our first instinct as the people of God is this, to go and gaze upon God? the God that we find in the scriptures. is our first instinct to go and consider who this God is and sit unhurried in his presence, contemplating his glory and his purpose. Is the desire of our collected heart inclined towards the glory of God and his unparalleled beauty? Has a vision of this glorious God captured our heart that, that frees us from pettiness in disputing? Has the vision of this glorious God given us a reason for existence? Or have we forgotten this God? Have we neglected him? Have we turned aside from him? Are we driven by his glory? And so this text is asking all sorts of questions on our lives, personally and then corporately. Are we dominated by a glorious vision of God or not? Well, we find good news this morning and we need good news. First and second Samuel, this book refuses to let us neglect God. This book is not going to let us hurry on to to action. It's not going to let us get distracted or just hurry on with our lives. This book is front-loaded with theology. It makes us wade through deep theology about God. And this is God's grace to us. God wants to reveal himself to us. And so that's our plan this morning. We're just going to walk through this song, this, this poetry, and we're going to turn our eyes towards the Lord. We're going to say, Lord, won't you reveal yourself to us? Because we want to be driven by your glory and nothing else. So if you have your Bibles, it would be helpful if you have them open in front of you. We're going to start with verse 1. Hannah sings, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And so we see in verse 1 that something has happened to Hannah. She's changed. There's no more tears. There's no more grief. There's no more vexation or anxiety. Rather, Hannah's mouth is full of of praise. She's become a glad worshiper of God. And we can't be confused about the nature of this change. Hannah hasn't become a a precious moments doll. She hasn't become a, a picture of serenity and quietude. No, when we read this text, we see that there's this great boldness in her soul. What does she do? She worships the Lord joyfully, but she doesn't only worship the Lord. She stands in the presence of her enemies. And what does she do? She denounces them. She opens her mouth wide and she lets them have it. 
The text of scripture is so forthright. My mouth derides my enemies. And there's a reason for this change. Why has Hannah changed? Well, she tells us, because I rejoice in your salvation. She has tasted the salvation of the Lord. She says this, my horn is exalted in the Lord. What does that mean? It means a great reversal has taken place in her life. The Lord has come to her and vindicated her. She, she was once maligned and abused, but now she's vindicated. You can think of a, a great animal, perhaps a bull after battle, <laughs> wins the battle and lifts his head up and his horns shine. <laughs> That's what happened to Hannah. She's won the battle and now her horns are up high because the Lord has exalted her. But Hannah does something interesting here. She doesn't dwell long upon her salvation, her experience of it. And she doesn't dwell long upon her experience of salvation because her heart is consumed with something better. Her heart is consumed with God and so she fixes her attention upon God and she desires to proclaim God to us. Look at verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah's teaching us about God, and that's why we came to this text, to learn about God. So our, our ears are inclined towards the text, and we ask Hannah, well, well, who is this God? What's he like? And Hannah gives us three descriptions of God. She tells us that this God is, is holy. He is holy. There is none holy like the Lord. Now, if you're a careful reader of Scripture, you've, you've heard that language before. Where have you heard it? Well, you, you heard it in the Exodus story. There's a lot of holiness language there. In fact, there's, there's one scene that mirrors Hannah's scene. So Israel crosses the sea. The Lord splits it. They walk through on dry ground. And they get to the other side, and what happens? Pharaoh and his chariots pursue Israel. And what does the Lord do? He smashes the sea down on them. And so there's Israel, they're standing on the edge of the sea, and what do they see? They see dead bodies floating up and coming to shore. And what does Israel do in response? They start to sing. And they sing this song. They say this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Israel, standing on the edge of the sea, they experience the Lord's salvation. What do they say? They say, the Lord is holy. Hannah has her own personal exodus story. She's maligned and abused. She receives a child and she stands back and she says, what? This God is holy. I see the same thing. And so we ask, well, what does it mean for God to be holy? Well, holy is one of those words we use a lot as Christians, but sometimes we're a bit fuzzy about it. So here's the definition. To be holy is to be devoted now, it seems like I've just substituted one word for the other, holy and devoted, but it's a really helpful word change. And just think with this, think about this for a moment. What does it mean for a man to be devoted to his wife? Well, it means something really simple. It means that he is faithful to her. It means that he's reserved only for her. And it means something really practical in life. It means that his heart and his eyes and his hands only exist for her and for no one else. And so we ask, well, what does it mean for the Lord to be holy? Well, it means that the Lord is devoted, completely devoted. He is devoted to his glory first and foremost. No one will deter him from the pursuit of his own glory. No one will distract him from that great end himself. And because he is consumed with his glory, utterly devoted to it, 
It means something. It means he's utterly devoted to his plan then because God is glorified through his plan. He's going to accomplish his, his plan of salvation and no one is going to, to stop him. And it means another thing. If God is devoted to his glory, it means he's devoted to his plan. It means he's devoted to his, his people. God is glorified in saving a people for himself and so he has set a, his heart upon a people and he will have them for himself. And Hannah is reflecting upon her experience of salvation and this is what she sees. This God is holy. I see his pure and utter devotion here. But Hannah is building on theology and she tells us a second thing about God. God's holiness makes him utterly unique. Hannah then sings, there, there is none besides you. We ask, well, what does that mean? What does that mean, that there's none besides God? Well, Isaiah writes upon this, and I think Isaiah might even be riffing off of Hannah's words. Listen to Isaiah speak about the uniqueness of God. Isaiah 40. He says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Isaiah says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. He's the only God, is he not? There is no one like him. And Hannah keeps building theology. He is holy he is unique, and because he is holy and unique, this is good news for God's people, he is utterly dependable. Hannah sings, there is no rock like our God. The imagery is so easy to understand. Rocks are what? They're, they're sturdy, they're immovable, they don't shake, they don't fall apart. And this is what the God of Israel is like. He is sturdy and he is immovable. He doesn't shake, he doesn't fall apart. And if you trust in him, you will never be disappointed. If you stand on him, you will never be shaken, you will never fall down. And that's what Hannah wants us to see about this God. He is your rock. And for this reason... We find writers in the scriptures calling upon this God, seeking this God, because he is so dependable. Psalm 61, verse 2. You remember what David said? He's in the midst of trial and adversity, and he cries out saying this, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. So Hannah's giving us the truth about God. And as we think about this truth that we see in verse 2, we say, this is our joy. This is our delight. There is nothing better than seeing this about our God. He is holy. He is unique. He is dependable. And as we meditate upon these words, we realize this is the truth that sustains our lives. It sustains our lives in the good days, and it sustains our lives ultimately in the bad days. In the midst of suffering and trial, what do we know? We know our God is holy. He's completely devoted to his glory and his ways and no one will turn him aside. We know that he is utterly unique, that he is the only God, that no one can rival him. 
We know that he's utterly dependable. That when we cast our weight upon him, we are never disappointed. And so we have to learn how to preach the truth to ourselves. And this is what Hannah wants us to do. She wants us to go home and meditate on these words, saying to ourselves, self, God is holy, don't you see it? God is utterly unique. God is the rock of my soul. Trust in him. We've got more to work through here. And we have to understand something about this truth about God. It's our delight. It's our joy. But this truth is not only for us. The truth of Christianity is not a a private truth. The truth of God's holiness applies to all people. It applies to Christians and non-Christians. It applies to the righteous and the wicked. It applies to the humble and to the proud. And so what does Hannah do? She turns her attention and she starts speaking to those outside, outside the realm of salvation. Verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. She says more about this later on. Verse 9, verse 10. She says, The wicked shall be cut off in darkness. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. So we learn this God that Hannah worships is not passive. He is holy, and because he is holy, he is devoted to the cause of justice and righteousness, and this is blessing to the poor and the persecuted because God is going to come and right things for them. But we see, verse 3, verse 9, verse 10, that there is a threat to Hannah's theology. And what's the threat? Those who live in pride, those who walk outside the laws of the Lord will be judged by this God because he is holy. And Hannah is telling us a very basic truth about God. This God is a God of knowledge. What does that mean? It means that no action goes unnoticed by this God. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He sees everything. And not only does he see everything, but he he judges everything. He judges the moral quality of every action. And then what does he do? He acts according to those actions and the quality of those actions. And Hannah doesn't want this truth to float above our heads. She wants it to land on us. So she applies the principles of God's righteousness to us. And she applies it to us because pride takes on so many different looks and so many different ways in our lives. So she takes this truth about God, his holiness and his righteousness, and she applies it to everyone. She applies it to the soldier. What's the temptation for the soldier? That the soldier would trust in his weapons. Verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. She takes this truth and she applies it to the rich. And what's the temptation of the rich? That the rich would trust in their money, in their resources. So verse 5. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. She applies it to women. And what can women be tempted to do? They can be tempted to trust in the fruit of their womb. And we see that happening in chapter one. This was something personal for Hannah. And so she applies this truth of God's righteousness to to women. Verse five, the barren has borne seven, but she who has many children are forlorn. Hannah applies this truth to politicians and to people who have power. And what's the temptation for politicians? to trust in their power. Verse 8, 
He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And what does Hannah want us to do? She wants us to flee from pride and she wants us to humble ourselves before this holy God. That's her desire. Whether you're a soldier, whether you're a mother, whether you're rich, whether you're a politician, she desires that you would forsake prides and humble yourself before this God. As we think about these verses, verse 4, verse 7, verse 5, verse 8, we have to notice that there's a confidence in Hannah's voice. She's speaking to all these different people, and we think about this. Here's this woman. She was maligned and abused. Now, all of a sudden, because she's experienced salvation, now she's standing here, and she's speaking to politicians. She's speaking to the rich. She's speaking to soldiers. And we ask, well, how is this possible? What's What's the root of her confidence? Why is she speaking with such forcefulness? Well, look at verse 6. I think the answer for everything is right here because this is the center of the song and at the center of this song we find the the greatest statement on God's sovereignty perhaps in the whole Bible. Hannah sings this. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he, he raises up. We ask, well, what does that mean? Well, it clearly means that God has control over both life and death and we ask, well, why were you born? Why was I born? Because God willed it. He raised you up. We can ask, why will I die? The text says, the Lord kills. The Lord kills. We can think spiritually about this as well because I think that's an appropriate avenue to run down. Why were you born again? Why did you trust in Christ? Because God willed it. And this doesn't only apply to the big things in life, life and death, spiritual birth. This theology in verse 6 applies to everything. This is poetry. And what Hannah is doing, she's reaching to both ends of the human life. She's reaching to birth and she's reaching to death. And when she reaches both ends, she's also saying everything in between is covered by God's sovereignty as well. Not just the big things, but all the small mundane matters as well. Yahweh is in control of all of it. And this is the root of Hannah's confidence. She has come to know this sovereign king. She sees this sovereign king, and because she knows this sovereign king, she is fearful of nothing. She is fearful of nothing. So we can see what Hannah's done for us. She has done a good thing for us. What has she done? She has taught us about God. And not only has she taught us about God, but she's done this very pastoral work for us. She's lifted up our heads. Throughout this song, she's been saying this to us. Would you just look at God? See him. Can you see what he is like? Can't you see that he is holy and that he is unique, that he is dependable, that he is righteous, that he is the judge, that ultimately is the sovereign king over all things? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? And Hannah's telling us, this is what you really need to know in this life. This is what needs to fill up your heart because when it fills up your heart, you're going to have joy, you're going to have confidence, you're going to have boldness in this life. There's nothing as important as this truth. So Hannah's done a good work for us. 
But we aren't done yet. We haven't finished Hannah's song yet, and if you've been following along in your Bibles, you're probably saying, well, you missed this last verse. So how does Hannah close this great song about God? Well, she ends this song about God in a very interesting way. She began the song by, by singing about what the Lord accomplished for her. She, she spoke of this great reversal. She said, my horn is exalted in the Lord. And we have this beautiful poetic picture of, of a bull or a mighty animal with its head raised high and the, the horn shining. And what does Hannah do to end her song? She ends her song by singing about what the Lord's going to do for another individual. Look at verse 10 and listen. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah's had a great reversal and she's saying there's going to be another reversal. There's going to be another individual whose head is going to be raised up and whose horns are going to shine in the sun as a victor over all things. And again, just like last week, what is this Old Testament text doing? It's pushing us forward. We listen to Hannah and we begin to wonder, who is this king? How is this king going to be saved? What is this king going to mean for me when I, when I see him and his horn is raised high and the, the sun is shining upon it as he stands victorious over all of his enemies? What's that going to mean for me? And here's the thing. As we study this book, those answers are going to become clear because as we work through passage after passage after passage, we're going to see that this king, this vindicated king, this saved king is Jesus Christ himself. And what this book is going to do, it's going to help us understand who this Jesus is and all that he is for us. It's going to help us to see that Jesus is this vindicated king. And his horn has been raised up in what? In his resurrection from the dead. In his resurrection from the dead. And so there's the song of Hannah. So perhaps the most important question is this. Well, how do we wrap all this up? Where do we go with all of this information? We've been listening to Hannah. We've been learning about God. Where do we go from here? I want to close by giving you three questions to go and ponder. Here's the first question. What's your heart doing? What's your heart doing? Hannah saw this God. Hannah knew this God. And what did she do? She rejoiced in him. Her heart was exceedingly happy with what she saw of God. She saw the sovereignty of God over all things. She saw the holiness of God. She saw the uniqueness of God. She knew the dependability of God. And she lifted up her voice and her heart towards the Lord. And the song is asking all of us, what's your heart doing? Does this truth make your heart happy in God? Do you want to sing because of it? So that's the first question. What's your heart doing? Second question. How are you going to respond? Or better yet, what are you going to do? And so we see in chapter 2 that God has not hidden himself from his people, but he reveals himself again and again and again. So here's the question. Are you going to pursue him? Here's the knowledge of God. You can see what he is like very clearly is this going to be the chief aim of your life or is something else going to be the chief aim of your life? Are you going to search this God out and meditate upon him, thinking about him, worshiping him? So that's the second question. What are you going to do? And last question. What are you going to be known for? 
What are you going to be known for? It goes back to the A.W. Tozer quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What are you going to be known for? We know what Hannah's known for. She's known for her great theology about God, her great love for God. What are you going to be known for? We can think about this not just as individuals, but as a church as well. What is Fort William Baptist Church going to be known for someday? Are we going to be known for our passionate pursuit of God? Or are we going to be known for something else? That's what Hannah's asking us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give thanks for this word. We need to see you. We need to see more of you. And so would you give us eyes and would you give us ears so that this text would come into our hearts. And as the text comes into our hearts, would you expand our hearts so that we might respond as you desire, that we might lift up our voices and worship you. Oh, Father, would you fill us with this great knowledge of who you are and what you are like. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.